Okay, it says I'm live. Let's hope this works. Let's get the Q&A section on. Um, people is mads. People's, people's be angry. People's be angry with all kinds of other peoples at the moment. Hysteria is mounting. We are, uh, it seems, on the, on the verge of, uh, of another war. It's coming soon. I'm just saying the Q&A section. And uh, I can think I can detect a bit of like the stress levels just going up and people getting more and more enraged and more and more frustrated. I'm not a very political person and I don't really talk politics very much because I don't really feel like I understand it. And I feel like if you don't understand the subject, you should sit down and shut the fuck up. Um, but one thing that did occur to me, maybe from a psychological point of view, that was pertinent to the issues discussed on this channel was uh, you all know that in the UK, we had a thing called Brexit, which is we decided that we didn't want to be in the EU anymore. <laughs> and uh, so that that's a thing that happened. And this morning, as I was brushing my teeth, I thought that's a bit like the thing with Donald and Hillary. So you have a situation where it becomes a battle of narratives. It becomes a battle of mindsets. It becomes a battle of what people think is the correct and appropriate solution. Historically, in my lifetime, um, certainly since the late 70s, the United Kingdom has been a politically apathetic nation. It was always been very hard to get people to think or talk about politics. And um, I noticed from the late 90s onwards, there was this sort of affected um, cynicism where people would pretend to know all about politics, but choose to not want to be involved because nothing ever gets changed anyway, was the attitude. I, that was, and that remained sort of constant in my head, silly me, the map is not the territory. And I came back after living abroad for a while and I think within uh, within two weeks of me coming back, the Brexit vote was going through. I wasn't on the electoral register, so there wasn't enough time for me to register and to vote. And I was like, well, it's a politically apathetic nation. We've had other votes about things recently and it made no difference anyway, so, so what? And actually I was really surprised by the vehemence and the aggression and the anger and uh, it was reported in the in the media like a lot of people were really falling out with each other whole families would have major fallings out with each other over these two narratives over these two clashing maps of reality that represent two separate value systems that when people uh, feel them they're just narratives they're just ideas they're just they're just stories in effect uh, but when people feel them to be threatened they defend them with an unusual amount of uh, vociferous, I guess you could say, a vociferous sort of rabid energy, which I've never seen before. So I was saying, well, it's nice to see people so politically engaged. However, in the case of Brexit, they really weren't. What they were was full of opinions. What they were was full of fire and full of passion, but without much information and rational thoughts fueling it. I went through a Brexit cycle myself. I was disengaged. I'm not, I don't, I'm not proud of, particularly proud of being British or of being English. Not really that fussed about politics myself, as I say. And I was like, well, you know, but if I had to vote, what would I do? And I went through this whole cycle in my head, which was, yeah, we should be independent. We should be a sovereign nation. 
And then I thought, what does that mean? Well, it means, I don't know, you know, the Union Jack and that. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is all going on inside my head. I was like, but what does that really mean, dude? What, 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 is it, what, is, what does that mean? Independence and sovereignty. What, what is that? What would that look like? What are the, ma the machinations of that based on where the country is now and where it needs to go? And I was like, I don't know. And then my brain helpfully said, well, why don't you think of it in terms of something you do understand? You understand a little bit about business. So if you had a business and it had gotten to this point along a timeline, doesn't really matter what it did 100 years ago or 50 years ago. What matters is where it's up to now. What do you think would help most to move it forward? And I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I'm sort of uh, thinking back to a time that never really existed. And if it did really actually exist, it was probably built upon a pile of dead bodies and rape and torture and enslavement and concentration camps, which, you know, we invented colonization and a huge amount of human suffering. So I was like, well, maybe that maybe you shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't move backwards. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe we shouldn't move backwards. And then we are kind of entrenched in this thing that's called the EU. And I was like, oh, shit. So inside my own head, I was thinking, what we need is a time machine. We need to go back and not join the EU in the first place. And my brain goes, but we don't have one. So what do you think we should do? And I got to the place where I was like, well, then I guess we should stick with it. Because to rip away from this and to rip the guts out of the machine could potentially be very, very dangerous. I'm telling you this so that I can tell you what my thought process was. That's from a psychological perspective of rationalizing and going through and trying to apply logic and having the humility to say, I don't really know. And that was what was missed in the whole development is people weren't saying, I don't really know. And so you have people who voted Brexit out of rage, out of anger and out of frustration, which would have been me. I would have voted for that because fuck you, Europe. Fuck you, bureaucracy. Fuck you, the EU with your unelected officials telling me what shaped banana I need to be eating. That's a joke that'll only make sense if you from Europe. Uh, and I just wanted to say, screw you, it was a reaction against. But then my brain was like, well, you can't, that's a protest vote. You can't do that. And many people who voted Brexit, it's widely reported, were very, very regretful the next day. They had, their, they had a little Brexit hangover. And many of the politicians who were pushing for Brexit retired or stepped down within two weeks of achieving that political goal because it wasn't really a political goal. It was just an explosion of frustration, a temper tantrum, a kick, a kicking out, a lashing out. And I actually think possibly, again, I don't know enough, but it looked like a manifestation of a sort of a sadomasochistic impulse in the guy who was in charge of the country at the time, David Cameron, who was being pushed and pulled between two extremely ungrateful polarities for months on end, and then did something that he knew was ultimately quite self-destructive and that would be destructive to the country that he'd started to develop, you know, aggressive feelings towards. Similarly, what we're seeing right now in America is this battle of two different narratives. Which team are you going to join? Uh, you know, which, <laughs> which demonic entity are you going to back? I did a video on this channel talking about how Trump is a malignant psychopath. I didn't do one about Hillary. Um, the reason why myself and other people who 
work within the field of psychology wanted to felt motivated to speak out about Trump is because it's so blatant. It's it's not that we anybody hates Republicans or hates his policies or anything like that. Psychologists have spoken out in unprecedented numbers, which nobody is supposed to do. It's kind of against the laws, the rules of psychology to do that because Trump is such a textbook case. It's so blatant that we've many people within psychology kind of felt compelled to go, hey, uh, excuse me, <laughs> you've got to check this out. But that didn't mean that people are saying, hey, Hillary seems like a barrel of laughs. What a sincere, kind, compassionate, decent, moral human being that is. What a great person to put huge amounts of power um, into, into the hands of. That wasn't what was being said. But there is this sense of frustration where people seem to not feel like they're being listened to. Like their narrative is the only true narrative. And in defending that narrative and in defending that story, people are pushing themselves into a corner where they're saying things that I don't believe that they would say under any other circumstances. Last night, I read, sad to read on my Facebook, my Facebook, I posted an article by Gabor Mate that was looking at uh, the potential childhood traumas that could result in a Donald Trump or a Hillary Clinton, both people who are clearly fucking mentally ill. And uh, a lady posted on there, a lady who I'm sure would never say this normally, in her fervor to defend Trump, started to justify how Donald Trump could at times potentially be making lecherous and inappropriate comments about his own daughter by saying, well, he's always been surrounded by beautiful models his whole life. You know, a beautiful woman is a beautiful woman and they're just all kind of the same to him. And uh, that made me feel really, really sad. It made me feel really, really sad to see that in the desperation to defend a sinking ship, uh, an indefensible position, that a woman would justify an incestuous, sexually abusive impulse. I'm not saying that he's done anything. I'm saying that in, forget Donald Trump, in any context, nobody should be defending a man looking at his own daughter with lust. How crazy is it that you would do that with your real name on a public forum and actually come out, come out and say that? But this is, this is not having to go with that individual woman. I've seen that symbolically occur across the board. People are saying things that I know that they don't really believe because it doesn't make sense. And I saw this uh, pre-Brexit. People would say things to defend a political position that I know they didn't really believe just to have their narrative supported and have their idea about how reality should play out be supported. It goes without saying, I'm sure everybody watching this can agree that there is no justification for any man ever looking at his daughter in that way. There's no justification for sexual abuse. There's no justification for sexual assault. There's no justification for the suggestion of the possibility of sexual assault. And you can't, you know, you can't, it, when you start trying to justify that, you're really on a slippery slope. And people say, now you're just attacking Trump again. There's no justification for taking government emails and plonking them on a secure server where they don't belong. 
there's no justification for getting caught doing that and then panic deleting thousands of them. There is a term, I don't think we have it in English law, but I know they have it in American law. It's called a guilty demeanor. Like if you demonstrate a guilty demeanor, that's a guilty demeanor. I don't know what was on those emails, but we know that she didn't want me to read them. So my point here is to say, there is this, there's this anger, there's this frustration, it's building, people are frightened. I think one of the things that we might, the, the, you know, I'm not particularly a Jungian guy, but I do subscribe to the notion that there might be something called a collective unconscious. I think what people are becoming aware of, it's breaking through the collective unconscious, is an awareness that the people in charge, they don't know what they're doing. There's something comforting about conspiracy theories. There's something comforting in the idea that the government is this all-powerful force that would do even extremely malignant and evil things just to keep a nation oppressed, because then there's still somebody in charge. And even though it's evil and Machiavellian and totally immoral, at least they have the power and the ability and the skill to do that. You know, take 9-11 if you like that conspiracy theory. Actually, the official story of 9-11 is the, is the conspiracy theory. Um, but say, say you subscribe to the uh, official story of 9-11. On the one hand, you, you subscribe to that and you go, that's what it is. That's the official story. Okay. So we have people in charge and they fucked up that day. They just didn't scramble uh, the planes into the sky fast enough like they would normally. NORAD had a stand down. That's a bit strange. But at least we have a NORAD. On the opposite side, which isn't really the opposite side, it's a false dichotomy. You have the conspiracy theory that says, no, no, Dick Cheney and his friends deliberately created this thing to justify an illegal invasion of a country that, oh, just happens to have one of the top nine remaining oil re uh, reserves in the world. You know, if you go and Google oil reserves by nation, you can kind of see places that we've either locked into trade agreements uh, the largest oil reserves by nation or, or nations that we are going to invade. Iraq and Libya. Nigeria has got a huge oil reserve. When are we going to go to Nigeria? Was that what Stop Coney was really about? I don't know. But these two things can seem to be opposites, but they're actually not because the idea behind both of these is that some big brother, some big other is in charge, whether it's evil or not. And I think what is happening right now, what is causing this panic that is manifesting as, as, as a lot of anger and aggression. And you'll see it in the comments to this video, you'll see people say things that are way out of bounds, that are way, that are very, very extreme, that you'll see a lot of misplaced aggression uh, focused on me for posting the video, and you'll see huge amounts of just disproportionate, it's almost narcissistic injury. You're almost seeing narcissistic injury and narcissistic raids. There's this hypersensitivity around my narrative remain was the right thing to do. And people who voted Brexit are fucking morons. They're all low IQ. Whoa, whoa, hang on a second. There are Oxford professors who have done lectures about why it's the best thing for the country. They're not fucking more, you know, you know what I'm saying? It gets, and vice versa, you know, uh, Brexiteers will be saying about the people who wanted to remain, they're immoral cowards. They have no backbone. They're, cucks they're multicultural multicultural cucks who just want to submit and but 
it gets real personal real quick. And I think it is because there's this group panic. There's this mass hysteria that's growing now that really we know nobody's in charge. Um, I'll take it away from American politics because I'm British and I know that some people get defensive because they think because I'm not American, I'm attacking America, which I'm not. But one of the failings that we saw around the whole Brexit fiasco was the um, cowardice and a thing that people do that I don't have a word for and maybe you guys can help me out with, where a person takes power and they want power. It could be, I want to drive the car. Give me the car keys. Do you know where the cinema is? Yeah, I know where the cinema is. Give me the car keys. I'm going to drive. And you give them the car keys and they start to drive and they fucking don't know where it is. So they stopped you from doing a job that you could do perfectly well yourself so that they could be the driver, but they don't actually know how to do the job. There seems to be a lot of that going on. There seems to be a hell of a lot of, I'm in charge. This is my thing. I'm not actually going to do anything or I'm going to do as little as I can, or I'm going to sit back and fucking bite my fingernails and shiver and hope that this gets better because people are terrified. The politicians are terrified now. And I, I think one of the reasons why is because of this, because of our connectivity, because of Twitter, because of Facebook. And you may call me a, a, a facile for saying that, but in a recent diplomatic incident, which I'm not going to bring up and get into, it involves a country that we look like we're, we're, we're walking towards war with. It was Russia. I'm not saying it was Russia. There's a diplomatic incident, and the response to the diplomatic incident, as reported in the press, is the Russian embassy tweeted their disappointment that blah, blah, blah. The... You know, <laughs> The British government Facebook page wrote a very sternly worded status update about da 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 da. You know, it, it's ridiculous. But the loop of communication is so much tighter now, and the boundaries between human beings is so much uh, less. And the boundaries between thoughts and the expression of that thought is less. And I think it's creating this dangerous situation where everybody kind of feels naked and exposed. So even your politicians now don't want to make hard decisions and unpopular decisions because they're kind of being trained through this kind of thing and through polls and, and instant feedback and getting jittery over what is it people think of me? Do they like me or not? Dude, it's not a fucking popularity contest. You have a job to do. Do your fucking job. When did we lose that? When did we walk away from that? When did we say that's not going to be a thing that we're going to do anymore? That's my final little thing, my final little rant on this. Watching uh, last year, watching uh, Syrian refugees walk through Europe, walk through the EU, Muslim refugees locked out of, barricaded out of, uh, certain countries in Central Europe, but being treated very well by the Serbs. And I'm not taking any, anything away from Serbia for doing that. They, there was a great humanitarian effort and they did a fantastic job. However, it was ironic given that that happened. The Serbs were being humanitarian and helping the Syrian Muslim refugees who, who were walking through Europe 
in the same year that their prime minister had to physically flee from a um it was in uh, it was in bosnia they were talking about one of the great the these huge massacres in uh, in bosnia of where thousands of men and boys were handcuffed taken away from their families and uh, taken away to a, a place to be shot and there was a memorial service for that and the prime minister of serbia goes down there and has to leave because people are chucking stones at him that happened in the same year it happened maybe six months apart and i'm thinking to myself this is strange these are really really strange times that we live in but my bigger question was where were we we're part of this thing called the eu there are people walking through europe they're walking away from a war that's why they're doing it they're not just you know it, it, they're, they're they're trying to get away from a war zone and it, this it, it's killing them and we're all wringing our hands going oh that's terrible and i'm scratching my head going where are the bosses i mean am i completely fucking naive i must be i must be completely naive i was like where's all of our people like Team America, Team EU, turning up with T-shirts with the European flag on, hanging out ration, hand, handing out ration packs and medical supplies and water. Where, where is that? Where did, why did that? People are going to tell me I'm, I'm totally naive. I, I don't get it. I, I, like to me, I'm like, well, shouldn't if that happens and it happens in your backyard and it happens where you are, don't aren't you supposed to do? Why didn't we do that? Sometimes I'm upset with what people do do. And I go, that's a really strange thing to do. The French flag thing on Facebook, that Facebook was like, yeah, yeah, you can totally do that. We'll help you have a French flag, but not for the other countries. We're really only interested in first world deaths. I was like, damn, that's a real like, fuck you. If you don't, if you're not a first world country and you happen to die, not on first, eh, sorry, Africa. Sorry, all, all the fucking hundreds of people killed by Islamic fundamentalist extremist terrorists in Africa. Yeah, we're not going to do that for you. Sorry about that, Mali. That's that's not going to work for you. That upsets me. But then I look at what doesn't happen and I'm bewildered. I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be on this planet. I don't know what this is for. How are we letting that happen? It doesn't matter what political party you're in or whether you're to the left or whether you're to the right. If that's happening on your back yard, aren't you supposed to do something about that? Th these places where, you know, around uh, the Balkans, where the uh, Syrian refugees were coming up, that's a two and a half hour flight away. So if you live in Britain, you've probably been on holiday to Spain or Greece in your life. These places are closer to our backyard than Spain, where you probably go to twice a year if you're British, maybe or greece where you've probably been to four or five times in your life these places are closer and yet they're so much further away it's 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 really really strange and that is what confuses me and that's what i don't understand but the overriding impression that i'm getting is this this sense of frustration and possibly why people are getting so angry and so frustrated is because the problems we face are very very complicated and they're more complex than they've ever been in human history. And we probably know too much. We're probably not living in 1984. We're probably living in some weird mutated version of that, where instead of being dumbed down and not given any information, we're given too much. I mean, have you watched any of these videos that try and describe what's going on in Syria and how complicated that is? Where your average person on the street 
certainly in, in my country, doesn't know the difference between Sunni and Shia and couldn't possibly tell you what Wahhabism means or where it comes from or why it exists and what its political impulse is. And why the fuck should they? Why, 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 sorry, not why the fuck should they, but why would they? Why would, I'm from the north of England, so why, if I go into a pub in Liverpool, why is your average dude or dudette in a pub in Liverpool going to know what Wahhabism is? And yet, look at what we're facing and look at the dangers we face, and yet it's not out there. The narrative isn't out there because of cowardice. Brexit, the way that Brexit went, was to me, and I, you're going to say, well, you're a psychologist, of course you're going to think this, is a breakdown of communication. It was not explained to the population what was happening in the world, why it was happening, and what was necessary to fix it. And I think one of the reasons why they didn't explain that is because they don't know. They don't know how to fix it. So these are worrying times. Really, really, uh, these are times that this is unprecedented and people are getting freaked out. So I know politics is kind of boring, should be a psychology channel, but I would encourage all of you to try and remain calm, to be self-aware. You're going to have these thoughts. You're going to have this, you're going to jump on board with different political campaigns and you'll find yourself leaning hard left on certain issues and hard right on other issues. But when it comes up, just look at it and say, okay, well, where did that thought come from? If that's not my thought, whose thought is it? And why is it inside of me? Or this is a potentially a good way to think about the situation. How do I know that it is? What's the evidence that supports this idea as being truthful or not? And then we come back to an increase in critical thinking, an increase in objectivity, um, and a capacity to reason and a capacity to be reasonable and to not flip the fuck out online and attack somebody or something that has nothing to do with the problem that you're facing because you don't have the capacity to attack the problem that you're facing. It's not okay. It, just slamming people on the internet and attacking them on the internet as a facile way of jerking off in somebody's face because you feel bad, it's not okay. It's not, this is, this is, this medium that we have really is a gift. It's fantastic. It brings people together who would never be able to communicate with each other. And, you know, I said this recently during the Vice documentary and the guy who made the documentary was calling me a fuddy-duddy. <laughs> Did you see that? Vice documentary on narcissism? What a steaming pile of horse shit. Fucking awful. I think I'm in it for about two minutes. Uh, Sam's in it uh, for longer. Um, but what a missed opportunity that was. What a load of smug, fake, ironic, hipster, douchebag wank that was. Just a, such a waste of time, total waste of time. But it's a sign of the times uh, where being popular and winning the popularity contest is all. That's all there is, is the popularity contest. You know, if you look at, um, I look at films like uh, The Hunger Games and uh I think that actually it's a fairly good reflection of, of what we're living in right now. Maybe not poor people going out and actually killing each other with various weapons. Oh, hang on a second. Proxy war. Just kidding. The element of it that focuses on celebrity and the superficiality of celebrity and trying to win that popularity contest. That I see a lot of that there. You see that playing out. 
it's presented in a way in the film that is super extreme and super exaggerated and is meant to be silly and at points is meant to be pathetic and, um, um, you know, is, is played for comedic value, but you can see direct parallels in real life. And you might say, well, that's meaningless. It doesn't matter that I laugh at the Kardashians. It doesn't matter that we're nearly on the verge of going to war with Russia, but all that anybody wants to talk about is strictly come dancing. That's okay. People need that. Yes and no. You know, these these things that we're using for entertainment, these things that we're using on a daily basis to stay connected with each other, they actually start to shape the way you think about the world and they start to shape the way you feel about the world. You know, people get the right posts or they put up pictures of themselves like this. There's a picture I put up on Facebook of me and Sam Vaknin trying to do that face and neither of us got it right. <laughs> We're like Sam. We should, Sam. Sam. We should do the Facebook face. You know, we go neither. Neither it didn't. It didn't come out right at all. But if that's what you're molded to, then you're being rewarded. You're seeking to be rewarded for self-centered superficiality. You're seeking to be rewarded for narcissism. You're losing. Your values are shifting. So you go. Here's honor. Honor. Here's truth. Truth. And here's a vanity. And here's my capacity to make other people feel jealous of me. And here's narcissism. And somewhere along the way, the values have shifted. So these now are a load of shit and they don't mean anything. And these ones have gone up. And now you will find in modern culture, people being rewarded simply for displaying the value of narcissism. So here's two things that I'm saying to you right now that are scary. One, narcissism is now its own cultural value in and of itself. It absolutely is. And I would defend that, defend that position 110%. And number two, not only is it, it's, it's not a cultural value that's fringe. It's not a cultural value that is only appealing to some weirdos on the edge, people who you ju would just disregard. It is such a mainstream cultural value that we now have celebrities and even politicians who are rewarded and applauded just for being as narcissistic and superficial and meaningless as you like. And they get up and they do something that is totally fucking pointless, that the only purpose it serves is to be self-congratulatory. And we're applauding people for applauding themselves. Does that, like, how the, how the fuck did we get here? But we are here. Well, all I was going to say to you is when I said that to the guy who made the Vice documentary, he was like, so what? So what? Isn't this all a bit fuddy-duddy? I was like, seriously, dude, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what kind of a world are your kids going to grow up in or my kids going to grow up in? If this is true now, what do you think is going to happen in 30 years' time? You can't just have a bunch of people walking around jerking off into a mirror and thinking, oh, and having other people jerk off while they watch that person jerk off into a mirror and think that we're going to be okay at the end of that because we're not. We're not. You, you, there is no, there's no forward progression from there. That being said, I guess I should answer some questions. Why is nobody talking to me? Have they changed this thing? Group chat is on to list all available commands. Look, say something to me. Anything. I've finished most of my rant now. You can say what you like. Maybe the question thing is not working. Okay, I'm going to go straight into answering some questions right now. If you can send me a, a question, you're more than welcome to do so. 
I just see a thing that said they've changed it again. They've changed this whole format. They change it every two weeks. Honestly, I swear to God, people at Google and YouTube, it's just run by some kid who's defending his job. So every six months they change everything around. They're like, this makes it better. Isn't that better? Isn't this better? Isn't it better now? No, it's not better. It's annoying. You've changed that. So Google Hangouts, which was already complicated, has changed again. To the forum. Hello, Richard. Ich bin aus Deutschland und 34 Jahre alt. I can't say 34 in German, sorry. I have two questions that are related to each other. About half a year ago, I went no contact with my family after becoming the scapegoat. You helped me a lot. I also went through most of your courses. My family, including my covert MPD mother, bothers me much less. That's good to hear. Even though I feel more free, thrive and enjoy my time with my husband, I spend too much time thinking of my family that I could put into other things. They're always present in the back of my head and I feel it keeps me from moving on with my life and it makes me sick. Recently, I feel very impatient and angry with myself that I still hang around with them, air quotes. Hey, what? I am afraid that when I stop giving them space in my life and in my head, that I might suppress emotions or processes that are important to look at and that I might harm myself by that. Okay. You then go on to ask some questions. Just to point something out here, deconstructing your narrative of the situation, you, you said, on the one hand, I've got no contact with my family. I feel like I'm thinking about them too much. And then in the next paragraph, you said, I'm afraid that when I stop giving them space in my life, negative consequence. So don't overcomplicate complicated problems. It's already complex. The complexity is written in. We don't need to help to make life situations more complex. All life situations are complex and all psychological problems are complex. You said, let's, let's break it down like this. I'm, I'm doing something in my head I don't want to be doing. I'm scared if I don't do that thing that I'm doing in my head that I don't want to be doing, that something bad will happen. So you could argue, and perhaps you should argue that there's a very, very simple evolutionary uh, pain pleasure principle at work when it comes to psychology and the way our uh, minds operate. You're going to do the thing um, that you think is going to give you the most amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. And fundamentally, if you associate more pleasure than pain to doing a thing, then you're going to keep doing it. Also, if inside of your head, you're saying to yourself, if I don't do X, then Y will be worse. So thinking obsessively about my family all the time sucks. But I believe at a deeper level that if I don't do that, something more awful than that will occur. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Systemically. I believe that Every time I leave the house, I have to switch the lights on and off 16 times. You know, somebody has developed um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Something that, that you see, I've seen a lot of uh, in my family, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, seems to correlate with IQ, by the way. I don't know what, what I don't know why that is, but people with, with uh, the, the higher IQ people that I know, they seem to all have these uh, com obsessive compulsive ticks. The light switch one is not one of them, but it's a commonly um, reported issue. So they have to turn on the light switch on and off every time they leave a room. So obsessive compulsion. And that sucks. It's annoying. They hate themselves for doing it. Just like you described, you get frustrated with yourself for doing it. 
But at a deeper level, they believe that if they don't do that, something bad is going to happen. So instead of trying to get rid of level one, why don't we look at level two and just question it? You know, first thing, pour a little philosophy juice on that just to soften, get a bit of neuroplasticity going, be super non-judgmental and just be like, why would you want to do that? What does that do for you? And just explore what's the benefit of that. What am I, what am I keeping hold of that I value that I will lose if I don't do that? Maybe there's a part of you that thinks that by obsessively thinking about them all the time, you're keeping your family close to you. And when you eventually get over that, you will really lose your family and they'll be truly lost to you. And then you will feel sad and you will feel like you have to grieve. So then when you have that fear of grieving, that can be a thing that stops you from doing a lot of things. Usually when emotions are stuck, or sorry, if um, there's a repetitive, repetitive pattern of, of thought that you don't want, you want to cast it out. Um, a lot of the times in, in, in myself, I've noticed and in clients when I'm talking to them, it relates back to something that an emotion that hasn't been processed and an emotion that we're frightened of processing because behind the emotion is going to be grief. There's going to be sadness and we're running from that sadness. Don't run from the pain. Don't run from the grief. Try and learn to process the emotions in a way that is organic and safe and is enough for you, whatever makes you feel comfortable, whatever is right for you in the small steps that you feel comfortable with and, and do it like that and you can start to move forward. I will now go on to read the second part of your question, but I suspect I may have already answered it. How can I move on and put them aside without avoiding or suppressing my emotions or simply bypassing? Good Lord. Um, you, how can I move on without avoiding them, without suppressing my emotions? Uh, okay, you don't suppress your emotions. You're asking the question, how can I move on without avoiding my emotions or bypassing. So you're already bypassing your emotions and that's what's stopping you from moving on. So it, flip it on its head. Express and explore the emotions and process them and you will move on because you'll feel safe to go, okay, I don't need to be thinking about them all the time. I can think about them as and when I need to, but I don't need that obsessive, compulsive, invasive thought coming into my head. Question number two was, how can I overcome this self-boycotting program and move on? Yeah, just express the emotion. It's not really self-boycotting, it's self-protection. You believe that this is the lesser of two evils. Wow. A long one. Here's a long one. I should really check that people can hear me. Blink twice if you can hit, just nod if you can hear me. Uh, I don't know, man. This, there's no... There's no Q&A. Add apps for your video call. Oh, I've broken it. I've broken the matrix. They, what's all this now? Hold the line. I just want people to be able to ask me questions. Is that too much to ask? Okay, I'm not gonna be able to figure that out. Please hold the line. I'll go to the YouTube page. I can see my face. I can see that the video speed is still poor. I've been thumbs down because people don't like me talking about Donald. Don't get mad at me. I love Donald. He's the best Donald that anybody has ever Donald. You know, he's the biggest Donald. 
He's the bestest and the biggest, and he has a plan. Uh, okay, I think uh, somebody said, fuck Google Hangout. <laughs> okay, yeah, people can hear me. Um, but they're not asking questions, they're just chatting to each other. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> this is all very Zizekian. It's just I have become meaningless. <laughs> Just in the corner. Do you ever hear uh, Slavoj Zizek was talking about what he thinks the future of sex will be in a modern society? It will be that um, as we move through this overconsumption of, of pornography and this desire to use more uh, machines in order to gain contact with each other because we lose the ability to be vulnerable and the ability to be intimate, he says eventually what will happen is... Uh, I will come with a sex toy, which will be a, a, an artificial vagina, and you will come with, a, you know, a dildo, a vibrator. And what will happen is we will meet in a room, and I will put my uh, uh, the dildo. They will put the fake penis inside of the fake vagina, and we'll switch them on, and they'll buzz away in the corner having the sex for us. And we can sit in the corner and hold hands and share a cup of tea and have a conversation whilst that, you know, annoying sex thing is 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 out of the way doing its thing so i'm the annoying dildo <laughs> whilst you guys are experiencing intimacy with each other it's like yes yes whatever bullshit he wants to say some false narrative whatever you want meanwhile we can do the real talking <laughs> those of you who don't like slab Zizek, that was probably a waste of time that's that's time you'll never get back it's over okay next question <laughs> I seem to keep on repeating my old childhood trauma pattern. Don't we all love, don't we all? With men, I'm in my twenties and I never had a real relationship, nor do I get any action worth mentioning. How dare you speak such vile pornographies to me? <laughs> Getting any action. Um, I'm a good looking woman, but always seem to be the second choice with men and they treat me without respect. I land with guys who tell me they want no relationship with me because they're just out of a long relationship and have about two one night stands a year. That's it. That's a strangely specific story to hear again and again. So every guy you meet is like, I'm just out of a long term relationship. I don't want a relationship with you. And I just have about two one night stands a year. And you're one of my one night stands. <laughs> She's got an emoticon of a scratchy, a little smiley and scratching his head like that. I'm tired of hearing the shit stories from assholes about their girlfriends and I get my dream castles destroyed that I desperately keep on building and projecting on these guys, although I'm trying to be more cautious now. I guess it's probably, I've not read the rest of your question, but we're probably the dream castles and the projection. I'm probably going to tell you to not do that anymore, probably. I feel very disappointed and hopeless every time and it hurts. Then I usually go on a porn rant, I guess to self-medicate, because it's actually boring to me now after watching so much. A porn rant? Do you mean, young lady, like a porn binge? You go on a porn binge. Okay. I guess to self-medicate. It might be. I mean, yeah, of, of course it will be self-medicate. There will be an anesthetic quality to it. There might also be an aggression quality to it. I could just totally be projecting here, but one of the things that's interested me in recent months is that like I started how I started this video. Aggression is a very interesting human drive. And uh, 
a lot of people who are into psychoanalytic theory, they look at aggression, sublimated aggression, aggression that has been pushed down and then starts to manifest in weird ways. So I'd always explore that. Porn in and of itself tends to be, if not always aggressive, there is a cold industrial element to it. So there's aggression there. And you might be, it might be sort of, sort of a vicarious way of getting back at men because you can control the men in the videos to a degree. You can choose which ones and the scenarios you want to see. So there might be some, there might be a little bit of aggression there, not just self-medication. I'm just saying that to you just so that you have it inside of your head. It's always interesting to, to explore. Um, it's actually boring to me now after watching so much. Yeah, that'll happen. If you, if you want it to be good again, you have to take a break or you should just invent more inside of your own head. It tends to be better that way. All joking aside, uh, I, I've seen more evidence recently that watching porn is bad, not because the Lord Jesus doesn't want you to do it like that. Spartacan life coach, he's been watching porn. The devil, God damn. Not, not because of that. Um, because... And this is where it freaked me out as a good pagan. It actually damages your ability to have sex um, over time. If you watch a lot of it for years, the way it wires, your male or female, doesn't matter. It actually damages your ability to be uh, intimate and to actually perform sexually for a man or a woman. Uh, it, it, can, it can be bad from that point of view. And it can really, really screw with your head in ways that I found more convincing. I'll dig that piece of research up if people are interested. I'm probably desensitized. It's still depressing though. You say I'm probably desensitized. It's still depressing though. No, that is depressing that you're now even desensitized to, uh, to porn. But again, don't get too depressed because porn is desensitizing. It's, it's numb. It's like porn is like you need your shoulder massaged and you need some deep, tissue massage you need somebody who can actually get in there who's actually feeling your injury and responding to you going i know it's just exactly it's like this is the size and the shape of exactly where i need the penetration to be um and what you're getting is like a blind robot who's been trained to do massage but they're kind of just getting a boxing glove on and just kind of punching you in the shoulder and it's like it's better than nothing but that's not really you know i wouldn't take this metaphor any further eh? <clears throat> um so it is and my point was it is desensitizing like if you're just getting that in any spot of your body the first five times you'll be like oh i felt that and by the 15th time you're like that's actually i think you're just going to leave a bruise it's not the, you know you start to you start to tune it out so it is desensitizing and you know it's not natural not everything that's natural is wonderful but you know it's it's not it's not what we're designed for by then i'm so weakened by the previous nice boy behavior huh, that i will run through any red lights okay straight into a narcissist psychopath and will take that shit on because just the prospect of a relationship is enough for me. So you let yourself starve out. You're self-isolating. You are self-isolating. Um, you're trying to control love. This isn't really about uh, sex and, and porn and stuff. This is really about love. 
uh, love in a broader love is a is a weak word love love is a word that we use in english that probably we should probably have about 10 words for it depending on the context in which we mean it so here i'm saying libidinous love which is like a, a your life seeking lost for life thriving energy and also your desire to form intimacy with another person in a way that just feels really cool like when you make a connection and it just feels awesome you're trying to control that probably because the way your parents were giving it to you when you were forming your initial attachment maybe they switched it on and off a lot or maybe your father in particular maybe he just didn't offer any at all he was just extremely emotionally distant so you're trying to you're trying to control that and you do it you're hobbling through it you're doing it in this juddering uh, repetition compulsion um push pull approach avoidance you're doing like an approach avoidance repetition complex thing just the prospect of a relationship is enough for me i have high standards but they get broken down by desperation frustration and hatred hatred for whom Mm. And then the cycle closes, and I've eaten more shit by men. Damn, trigger warning. That's nasty. Uh, metaphorically, I'm presuming, which obviously really helps me see the light at the end of the tunnel and find my trust and believe in the good in them. I'm suspecting sarcasm is being used here. Brackets. My brain just generalizes the shit out of everything when I'm enraged and I can't help myself. That's what everybody's brain does when you're frustrated and desperate and enraged. Uh, you go into typical uh, patterns of thought that we would typically associate with borderline personality disorder or CPTSD, uh, catastrophizing, black and white thinking, you know, reducing reality down to two dimensions and two tones where there's no options left. Of course, love and intimacy can only exist in a realm of three and four dimensions where there's lots of color and brightness and lots of different options. But that's also the realm in which you can get hurt. So it's finding that balance where you feel comfortable moving into the colorful realm that's 3D, where there's lots of colors and options and varieties and new things from new men who have new beliefs and new ways of approaching the world, which you can then connect with because you're being a new person. So you're dishing out a new energy and the energy that you're creating energy when you're chatting with a guy is a new thing so whatever color energy you're bashing out right now you want to stop doing a new way of communicating with people so you have your thing that you're bringing to the table your chi and he has his chi and that creates a certain thing well up until now yours is kind of like this and then his is kind of like this and it's gone yeah and nobody's really happy so what you want to do is you do a new pattern you look for a new pattern you make a new pattern so life doesn't really change on our terms it changes on its own terms which requires bravery and openness and you've got to be like louise l hay and you have to touch your throat chakra and say i'm willing to change i am willing to change i am open to the new okay uh that's at least how I perceive it, and it, it infuriates me every time beyond means, even though I'm aware of it all. Yeah, awareness is not enough, sadly, unless you're aware of the full mechanisms behind everything. You can't just be aware at one level and fix it. Or is there still a point I'm missing? Yeah, the point that you're missing is your, you, you can't see how rigid you're being, and that's not a moral condemnation of you or a criticism of you. It's just that you're telling me you want to improve your tennis serve 
And then you go and do like a thousand reps with a ping pong bat. And then you come back to me and go, my tennis serve still sucks. And I'm like, well, don't use the ping pong bat anymore. And you go, no, I only want to use the ping pong bat because the tennis racket hurts my wrist. Wow, that's a weird one. You got to do, you got to be flexible in ways that you can't imagine yet. And how are you going to be flexible in ways you can't imagine yet if you can't even imagine it? Well, you just have to then become open to change for its own sake and open to new ideas and new possibilities for their own sake. And just take on change. Just change for its own, change everything. Change the route home you take from work. Change the music you listen to. Change the news channel you tune into. But just don't do Russia today because they're being kicked out of the UK at the moment. Because as I said, we're going to war. <clears throat> The shit circle, the shit circle, hello, the shit circle, still, see, you said shit a lot here, you said it a lot, now, I like swearing, as some of you may have noticed, but you say shit a lot, shit, usually, I guess I would associate with somebody being really angry, um, I think you've tried to not sound as angry as you really are in this email, shit, Waste, pointlessness, futility, frustration, shit. Here's the thing that you can try. Don't use the word shit for seven days. Just don't say it. In fact, don't swear for seven days because you need to change some things up. I can tell you you're getting really pissed off. So, you know, don't swear. Try not swearing for seven days and definitely don't say the word shit. You're saying the word shit too much. And by the power of magic, okay, you're actually invoking shit into your life with a lot of emotional energy and you're repeating it so you're doing it often. So I want you to say rainbow unicorn poopy from now on. It will change your fucking life. Rainbow unicorn poopy. It still keeps repeating itself, though I'm working on myself constantly now. Oh yeah, you just told us how you work on yourself constantly. Uh, and other areas of my life, like work, have improved. That's great, you know, and you have to acknowledge that some of what you're doing at least is working. So you've got you to look, like, in, and this is pure NLP. They would say, okay, so you have a strategy over here that's working. What did you do over here that worked for you that you can take to this other area that is not working for you? So whatever it was that improved the work situation, what can you take from that and apply it to the relationship situation? I kind of feel unattractive and a lot less woman, less feminine because of this. This? So far, all you've described to me is a cluster of thoughts and feelings and beliefs that's probably rocking around inside a well-trod neural network in your brain. Um, you know, you're, you're feeling... So what you're telling me is I feel unattractive because of this, like it's an external event, but it's actually an internal event. So I think probably what's happening is you feel unattractive and it's kind of like an emotional flashback or a belief that holds an emo emotional flashback in place. And that, you know what I'm saying? So you reverse it, you probably get close to the truth. This, so you go come hoc, ergo prop to hoc with this, therefore because of this, and you're going, this is making me feel this. Well, no, you already hold this in the system, probably since childhood, still on that daddy thing, maybe, maybe mom too, not enough love, not enough 
you're awesome. What a cool little girl you are. What did you do today? That's fantastic. Tell me more. Attention, love, validation. And it's left you with this hangover feeling of being unattractive. So even though you are objectively attractive, you said, you know, you're you're a, a good looking girl, you don't feel you are. So you kind of then manipulate situations unconsciously to get the feedback that confirms your core belief, which is I'm not attractive. I know. I do this a lot. It's the story of my life. So the self-loathing makes me generate scenarios where it confirms my self-loathing, especially when it comes to members of the opposite sex. That's quite common for me. In order for me to not do that, I have to go through all kinds of mental acrobatics to avoid that unconscious drive. Um, I feel like I'm missing my best years and it's depressing and infuriating me, which I know my always triggered, it's a funny form sentence, seemingly endless rage towards men doesn't help me get into a relationship either. Smiley face that is a bomb that has been, that has a string that's been set on fire that's going to go off like a cartoon. Uh, yeah, no, um, there was something that I think I read it. I think I might have read it in The Game, that book about pickup artistry. I had a very, very, uh, very nastily abusive uh, girlfriend um, six, seven years ago. And she insisted that I read the book, The Game, which was so weird because she was obsessed with, uh, she was obsessed with being seduced by men wanting, she was a pure histrionic, by men wanting her. And she was obsessed with this book. She made me read it. I thought it was all right. Um, and in that, somebody did say, you know, if a guy has a problem with women and feels a resentment towards all women, then when he's talking to a woman, she's going to feel that resentment. She's going to feel that hatred and it's going to be a problem. you gotta, you got to, at some point, find a way of getting yourself back to liking men. I think on the one hand, you really, really love men. But then on the other hand, you're really fucking frustrated with men because of the shit they talk and the experiences you've had. And that holds you in two separate places. You kind of need to integrate the two. So by forgiving what has happened in the past and then saying, okay, I'm going to try and experience something new by changing the way I feel and taking this feeling of really, really liking men into this arena and then making my unconscious selections based on that. It's not easy. And it requires a bit of trust in order for you to just try this in your own way. But you'll find that what I'm saying is true and it works. I made it without a boyfriend for the longest time now. This is called the Spartan Life Coach. I don't expect women to congratulate themselves for making it without boyfriends. You are a Spartan woman. And therefore, of course, you made it just fine without a boyfriend. Same with the men here. Congratulate them for surviving without a girlfriend. You're a human entity, an adult, a sovereign being. Of course, you would be fine without relationship. Uh, and although I'm more than used to it, I feel like there's something missing from my life and I'm not normal. Okay. Um, which again, depresses me a lot. That again, might be an emotional flashback that you're having a post hoc justification for. So you don't feel normal and you feel sad. Childhood issues, I'm guessing. Um, but your brain is going, no, 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 it's because I can't get a boyfriend because of this, this, and this. Um, you're actually probably, if you resolved the emotional flashbacks, you would probably find being single 
uh, a pH neutral or even enjoyable experience. I find it. I find it pH neutral these days. Um, I can't even watch an American high school movie because the characters all have relationships. Nobody should be watching those films anyway. Uh, what Hollywood will teach you about intimacy is guaranteed if you keep consuming that stuff to hook you on antidepressants within three or four years. And it's deliberately designed to do that. It will also guarantee that your relationships will fail and that you will rush into marriages and then get divorced. And uh, your life will, your whole life energy will all be around the trauma of failed relationships. Do not watch that shit. It is bad brainwashing. Um, when I missed out on this first boyfriend experience, sorry, let me read that again. I, I can't even watch an American high school movie, comma, because the characters all have relationships. When I, oh, I see, maybe the emphasis is, when I missed out on this first boyfriend experience, I don't know what that means to you. It doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and maybe I haven't watched enough rom-coms and, and American high school movies. Uh, first boyfriend experience. It would be interesting to explore what that means to you. It sounds. Uh, it it sounds like a little bit of propaganda has really set root inside your brain. Like everybody's supposed to get this first boyfriend experience. Based on the context, I don't think you're talking about anything sexual. I don't know. I don't know what this is. Is it when you fall in love with the cute quarterback with the nice hair? Like, I'm not trying to be a dick here, but like, obviously you've got it from the movies, but I don't know what a first boyfriend experience is. It should be disappointing, awkward, uh, embarrassing, and the kind of thing when you think back to it, you cringe inside and puke up in your mouth a little bit. All my first boyfriend experiences were like that. I I, I don't, like, it. It it's all a mess. It's supposed to be a bit of a mess. That's just life. Um, that's That's just the way it works. It's all going to be a bit of a mess. I don't think there is any kind of sugar sweet, uh, you know, high school prom dream that you. I don't. I don't think so. Uh, it might sound petty to some, but it really hurts. No, it doesn't sound petty. It sounds confused. It sounds like propaganda, um, and it also sounds like you're not really talking about the thing you think you're talking about is not the thing that's really hurting you. So you said it really hurts, and you capitalized really hurts. You're not getting love from a man. You're not having this first boyfriend experience. Maybe, let me go Freudian for a second here. Your true first boyfriend experience as a little girl was supposed to be with your father. It was supposed to be your first boyfriend. is supposed to be your first initial attachment with a libidinous, but not necessarily erotic attachment with a male is supposed to be the father figure. So maybe you really did miss out on that first boyfriend experience and we could we could uh, adopt a Freudian perspective here. Uh, it might sound petty to some, but it really hurts. No, pain is never petty. Um, it really genuinely sounds like uh, you feel like you missed out on the first boyfriend experience that you saw in Hollywood high school movies, but actually your unconscious is going, I've missed out on the love of my father that I should have had the first time. And all these kids in the American high school movies, probably most of them, you're seeing uh, the white picket fence and the idealized version of what American family life should look like. Allow me to disavow you of certain illusions. My major client, it has been ever since I used to do uh, self-defense. It has been since 2006. Um, 
that fantasy of American life is very much a fantasy. Nobody's really living that way. Certainly, uh, certainly not many of the people that I've spoken to. And some people are having a lovely time as well, of course, which is always nice to see. We can re- reconfirm the hope that you can have something because there are people out there who, who really do have that. Um, but yeah, there's stuff that you've got from the American high school movies. I think it's fucking with your head, bro. My father is a narcissist. Oh, here we go. My father, tell me about your father. Meine Vater ist ein narcissist, maybe even a psychopath, who was absent for most of my childhood. I swear I didn't read down on the email. I didn't. He was absent for most of my childhood and then came to visit from time to time. Okay. So what you just said, like you wrote paragraphs about everything else and then you gave a sentence to that. This is a real problem. Your father is highly narcissistic and he was absent for your childhood. And then he came to visit from time to time. What that tells, so you don't be you for a second because you got CPTSD. So everybody with CPTSD is such a little toughie. Mm, I'm so tough. Little tough cookies, little tough, little tough girls and little tough boys. I'm so tough. Nothing hurts me. Uh, Imagine you're not you. Imagine you're a psychologist. We have a little girl and she's four. And her dad has fucked off and left her. He could see her, but he chooses not to because he's so self-involved. That sucks. Okay. What do you think, as a psychologist, it does to the mind and the emotions of that little girl? What does that communicate to her at the unconscious level? I'll give you a clue. It communicates to her at the unconscious level because she doesn't have an adult's mind because she's four because she doesn't have ego boundaries that have been formed yet, and because she can't rationalize a situation, what that communicates to the child is, daddy doesn't love me. Because daddy is God, it translates at the unconscious level to, I am not lovable, there must be something wrong with me. So that one sentence you gave me, my father's highly narcissistic, he was absent during childhood, in the core of your being, you, you feel unlovable, you feel like there's, there's uh, something wrong with you. There must be something wrong with me is the mantra repeated in the unconscious of uh, the people with uh, CPTSD and childhood trauma. Okay. Sometimes uh, he, he came to visit from time to time and sometimes without calling before to family holidays. Well, that was very disruptive and rude and non-boundary respecting of him. He was my hero when I was a child. Your idealized vision of your father was your hero as a child until I figured out what was going on and that he betrayed my mother while she was still pregnant with me. He and that other woman wouldn't stop, although my mother knew and even called her. Strangely enough, it seems to happen to me sometimes that when I'm really into a guy, some bitch, excuse the term, I think everybody's going to excuse the term in this context asshole woman oh you weren't asking me to excuse the term bitch but asshole woman okay um comes in between and knows how to capture him so there's a repetition complex for you to re-experience the abandonment that your mother went through when she was pregnant with you by when you securing love with a guy uh, an interloper a woman comes in and steals him away okay that's so you've developed a repetition complex by proxy for your mother's uh, trauma that you were experiencing right alongside her in the womb. 
So when she was upset and she was crying and flooded with adrenaline, you would have been experiencing that too. She comes in between and knows how to capture him. She knows how to capture him. She knows how to capture him. Is that what it takes to turn a man's head? Is it that a woman have the knowledge of how to capture him inside of a net? Do you fear cunning women? Um, I, I think there's a little bit of a coordinate there that gives me an insight into your map of reality, which says that love is rare, fickle, and fragile, and men as conduits of love are fickle and changeable and, and fragile. And that if another woman comes along and if she knows how to capture him, that's it. Love's gone. So it's a high risk activity. It's a, you know, you've got to, you've got to kind of almost put a blink, put blinkers on, on the man's head to stop him from looking at other women, because if she knows how to capture him, then she will. That's a reality. Undoubtedly, many people are like that. But I would take the onus off the woman, the seductress there, and put it back on the man. Because what kind of a man, don't be you, don't think of you as you, don't think of your situations and the faces and the names of the guys that you've been with, or even your father's face. Think like a psychologist, step outside for a second. You know, what, what kind of, let's say, I don't know what your age is, let's say we imagine a 25 year old guy, he's really into girl A, and then girl B comes along, and her name is Angelina Jolie, and she steals him away, and then it all goes wrong 10 years later. Ha ha. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fucking with you kids. It's called a pattern interrupt. It's okay. Imagine that you have a guy whose head gets turned like that by a woman who, as you said it, knows how to capture him. If a guy is a fully formed, emotionally mature adult with a backbone who knows what he wants and he wants this person, what can some chick with some knowledge in a fishing net really do to that, to change that? I would suggest nothing. So you have to have selected a guy who is, you're selecting weak-willed, Maybe you, you said you're good looking. Maybe you're getting like really vain, superficial guys who can, if they see somebody else giving them attention, he'll go with that one. And you experience that as, oh, I was rejected. And he just went with it. He went with the next girl that came along. But you don't see that once he's with her, he does the same fucking thing again when the next girl comes along and the next girl comes along. And it's not about you. It's about what he does. A lot of this is about what the guy has done. A lot of it is your brain is telling it's you. This whole tragic story of your father, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his issues. It's about him failing in his uh, duty of care to you as a father. He didn't parent you. He wasn't there. And that's not okay. That's a bad thing to do that fucks a child up because it makes the child feel like there is something wrong with them and it fucks them up for life. And all he had to do... No parent has to do anything particularly fucking amazing. It's hang out, be there, and say nice things to you. Not all the time, like sometimes. And maybe take you for an ice cream or something. It's not that fucking hard. We're not hardwired 
to have highly complicated, highly complex needs. We're still animals. We're still mammals. And basically it's attention. You just be there and you just be around that person and they're okay. I know this from uh, mentoring um, uh, people. I've not done much of it, but I've done a little bit of it. I did some of it recently, not professionally. It was done as a favor for somebody. And a lot of that work was just permitting that younger person to be in my space. And uh, I really didn't even, a lot of the time I didn't say that much to them because I wanted them to just experience being there and me just assuming that they would be okay. Because kids respond to an authority figure, I was the authority figure, the way that you treat them. So if I treat you like you're a young adult and you're fine, then you're a young adult and you're fine. That's what you're gonna do because it's like, it's a little trick that I got from, uh, from working in the schools. If you treat kids like they're young, uh, mature adults who are capable of philosophical thought and they can debate this subject and that subject and you're talking about how they're going to get on with the rest of their lives they engage if you treat them like buckets that you're going to shove information into then they they will fight you and they'll phase out and dissociate because you're torturing them in this individual case all that you needed was a bit of attention and he couldn't do that because he was so self-involved and the effect of him choosing not to do that is it's caused you a lot of pain that pain is now playing out with uh, with men. You're seeing things in men. I think you're doing two things, and I've done the same thing. You're selecting guys who are wafty, probably a bit dim, but pretty, but vain, uh, a bit spineless. They'll go with the next new thing all the time, whatever. And also, sometimes you're probably projecting ideas and behavior patterns onto them that, that aren't even there. So you're doing two things to play out the childhood trauma that you mentioned uh, uh, in the beginning of the first rejection that you experienced from your father. Okay. Oh, um, uh, here we go. So you said uh, he comes in between and he knows how to capture him like Angelina Jolie. You didn't say that. I said that, which I don't know how to play these games. And also I don't want to, it's too doggy style. I don't think English is your first language. That's not an expression in English. <laughs> <laughs> Doggy style pretty much means one thing in English. Uh, so you don't know how to play these games and you don't want to. You don't, nobody has to play games in order to get through relationships. It's, it's horseshit that you have to play games or be cunning or be manipulative. It's just, it's completely, it's completely untrue. And uh, the more you do that, the more you invest in dishonesty and, and game playing, the more problems you're going to have further down the road. So there's no need for that. Um, it's too doggy style. It's not too doggy style. And I don't think that's what you really mean. That's when I just drop the ball and walk away in anger. That also is probably not the best response. My mother never had a relationship again. And she tended to retreat into her bed and cut herself off from people. This seems to be a little bit of a pattern that, that you're playing out, the self-isolation thing. And uh, you're almost... This is all purely unconscious. Nobody, would, of course, you would never consciously do this to yourself, but you're kind of finding an excuse to play out the same pattern. by going, see what these guys did to me? Now I'm going to self-isolate. She was an amazing person and she didn't deserve this. That's right. She absolutely didn't deserve it, as you didn't deserve it either. She passed away a few years ago. I'm sorry to hear that. And now I feel like I adopted her pattern. Yes, you did. Ergo. Ergo, ergo, is it? My question, sum it all up, 
I never had a relationship. How do I get out of the circle of getting disappointed and treating treated like second choice by men? Second choice, second choice, second choice. Do you feel like your mother was second choice to the lover that your father took? Did you feel like you were second choice to the lover that your father took? Maybe both. These are things that, and the emotion that is behind them also needs to be expressed somehow. There's a tremendous amount of grief here and that needs to be expressed in your own way that you feel safe and that you're comfortable with and that is organic. Good place to start. Pete Walker did a book uh, called The Tao of Fully Feeling. Uh, the Tao, Tao is spelled T-A-O, but it's a Chinese word. So you don't say Tao, you say Tao, the Tao of Fully Feeling. Um, you can get that on Kindle. You can read it on your smartphone whenever you want. Um, it's a brilliant book and it will help you how to process these kinds of emotions in a way that is comfortable and safe and organic. And when you do process that, that emotion, it will give you more of a consciousness cleanse and a consciousness upgrade than a thousand ayahuasca ceremonies wrapped into one. Never had a relationship. How do I get out of the circle of getting disappointed and treated like second choice by men? By grieving for the fact that the first man in your life treated you and your mother as a second choice and he disappointed you both and let you both down and processing that. Not to brag, but I work as a model. So even for a total asshole, it can't be my looks. Oh, I see as a man who's a total asshole. No, you're not. You're, I don't think, I don't think that what is happening is what you think it is happening. And you're a model, you say. So my question, if this was coaching would be, are you trying to date models? Not that you can't, not that there's not really decent, uh, nice professional male models out there. I, I, I know that there is, but I also know some proper bellends um, who work in that field. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them to look after a fucking cat, let alone an outdoor cat, by the way, not an indoor cat. I wouldn't let them look after a fucking outdoor cat, let alone uh, run a relationship because the, the self-involvement is stunning. It's just like, it's mind altering. They're so focused on themselves that they, their, their whole psychology collapses in upon itself and they create an infinitely dense singularity of selfishness and self-centeredness that bends time and space so that everybody in the immediate environment gets sucked into that nonsense right alongside them. You've got to be so careful, but maybe you're not dating models. Maybe you're um, dating bikers or tattoo artists or professional fire jugglers or professional beatboxers or professional skateboarders. I don't know. All of those things are fine. They're fine. Don't be so judgy. Mr. Lifey McLife coach. God. I don't know who you're dating, but you, you got to like use common sense. This is what your father should have taught you or, or a big brother should have taught you. Like the, the expression that, well, the question that I always have uh, is what did you expect? Like, what did you expect? So you're dating a guy who has just come out of prison and you, he's a coke addict. Oh, he didn't treat you very well. Well, what did you expect? <laughs> you know, so you've got to be smart. You've got to be sensible. Maybe you are going for guys who there really is a chance with and you're still getting this problem, in which case it's not about that. But please do be cunning. Do be smart. Um, not This is one of the many, many problems with not having a father figure around. He should have been there to really talk you through this and guide you through what to expect when dealing with men, when trying to handle the thing, this entity, this thing called a man. 
dealing with his outlook, his needs, his behavior patterns, the beliefs, everything that goes into being a man. And maybe I should talk about that more on the channel. I got a lot of women following on this channel. Maybe that would help. Hmm. Um, okay. Help, please. I'm sorry for the long text, but I, uh, I hope you go through it. Thank you for everything you are and that you do. Uh, I think I probably gave all the advice that I could for that one. Um, yeah. A anything else that I say is just going to cloud the water, is going to muddy the water, and it's going to confuse you. The core issue is the father abandonment issue, and that needs to be processed, and there isn't really an easy way of doing it. Um, I had the same thing. I had to go through exactly the same thing. I'm still going through the same things uh, because of both parents, abandonment, abuse. Um, it really fucks you up. It really can scramble uh, your brain up, especially as it pertains to love and intimate relationships. I want to do one more. It's 10 past one in the morning here, and then we're going to go off to the land of Nod. Oh, oh okay. Uh, oh, you actually asked about five questions, one under <laughs> the other. Uh, okay, one more question. This is, is another, another paragraph here. I'm going to have to do this uh, fast. Uh, one more question. I think I've been triggered into an anger flashback a few days ago, and now I'm pretty easy to disturb in a way that my heart starts pumping out my chest with an adrenalized excitement when people come for me, even in the slightest way. Even now, I've been very successful showing some a-holes the ropes with your self-assertiveness. Well done. Thanks for that, you said. Um, but they can still say things that will make me suppress my tears, which I obviously don't like to do as it cramps my throat. How come even if I won the argument, verbal boundary transgression by being aggressive and humorous, I still feel angry about it and it needs as little as a stupid bitch, intellectually less abled, in inverted commas, standing by and laughing or giggling at me at one point to make me viciously angry after. Uh, the emotional flashbacks that you are going through and that you will be going through, um, you'll get all kinds, like, you have a problem with men. Um, you, you have a problem with women as well. Think, uh, I, there isn't really time for me to go into it, but think what kinds of problems, if you were a psychologist, would a female client who'd been abandoned by a father have with women? The father abandoned the, the client with another woman. Some snide, smart-ass, thinks-she-knows-it-all woman who has no moral boundaries and who thinks that what she did was really, really clever. Why would that be triggering to have some, as you said it, bitch standing by on the sidelines and laughing or giggling whilst you're dealing with confrontation? Because you now you have issues around unfairness and around women uh, pushing the emotional boundaries and taking the piss and, and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, you, you, you can expect uh, degree of sensitivity towards that emotional flashbacks will be triggered by scenarios that we feel at the unconsciously level most closely represent that which we uh, experienced as traumatic in in childhood even though i know to ignore her in that moment things like that don't go out of my head easily they will not small incidents keep coming up that i might not have ever cared about much at that time but they anger the shit out of me now because it's a full-blown emotional flashback and it pertains to the original trauma my heart is pounding out of my chest and i hope it's soon over and it won't get to that stage when my throat starts closing again. 
has made so much progress. I had made so much progress and I really don't like the erratic state I'm in now. How can I practice better state management? This isn't a state management issue. This is a, a lack of processing of emotion that was uh, triggered by trauma. That's what it is. It's not really state. State management is the icing on the cake. And this is like layer one or layer two of, of, of the cake. It's much, much deeper than that. Do covert narcissists use humor in a conversation to get you loose and then switch up when they found something personal enough that might trigger you? All narcissists do that. Uh, borderlines, histrionics, uh, psychopaths do it. They'll get you to drop your guard using humor and then, um, yeah, they'll bait and switch you. Absolutely. It's not just a covert narcissistic tactic. Um, also, I'd like to add, Sam Backman said narcissists don't have humor. Uh, did he? Because I never read that or heard it. And I've hung out with Sam and he's pretty fucking funny. So ooh, I'm not sure. You might need to dig out the reference for that. You say, I say, so not true. Yeah, me too. I've met tons of narcissists and many of them have a wicked sense of humor. Yeah, probably a lot of your, like the best stand-up comedians who are out there, um, they probably have quite pronounced narcissistic traits, if not full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. Stand-up comedy is a manifestation of the, the fight fawn response of CPTSD. Well, if that, that's, that's what I have is the fight, fight fawn is predominant traumatic responses in my CPTSD. And that if it kicks over into being predatory, then you have um, full-blown MPD. So yeah, no, many narcissists will be very, I think of actually the two, there are two people that I've had in my life for a very long time who are highly narcissistic, they're textbook narcissists, and nobody can make me laugh harder than them. I am a comedy snob, a stand-up comedy. I'm a total snob. And if something is not funny, I will absolutely not laugh. And they both know how to uh, uh, push my buttons. They know what I find funny and they can have me in stitches with really silly things that probably nobody else would find funny. So yeah, no, narcissism is, uh, and humor. Absolutely. Yeah. They can be very, very funny. Um, as Sam Backnin, I, I heard you mentioning his name a few times. Don't they say something like the devil tells the truth 99 times and then the hundred time he lies. Who's they? <laughs> I don't know about that. Isn't that how lies are far more effective and efficient? Isn't that the nature of a narcissist and all his twisted disorderness? Uh, okay. So da, 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 da. it seems to me, one more thing as pertains to Vaknin, it seems to me that we people who had narcissistic and social parents always find ways and excuses to have some cluster bees around us. Uh, <clears throat> and if not by us ourselves, they and their upsetting stories are brought to us by the usual other CPTSD suffering codependents around us. It's like an addiction. Ross Rosenberg and Till Swan talk about codependency. That's an oxymoron to me how to talk to a spiritual narcissist or very narco seeming spiritual leader about her codependency. No comment. We need to swim among the sharks, maybe for our egos. This is kind of getting a little less focused right now. Okay. There's a question here. Let's go straight to the question. Oh, you asked me for comments. Uh, my comment is, uh, try, I, I, well, I, I try to stick as much as possible to the literature. The reason why, uh, I give Sam Batman so much respect is because he sticks so rigorous to the rigorously to the literature and he adds so much insight to it that I know very well um academics steal 
and then publish papers based on what he said. So stick to the stick to the literature. Try and be really, really specific. That that would that would be my uh, that would be my comment. Um, your question then goes into: uh, Is there a special fascination by people who suffer from CPTSD or are codependent to go wander into the darkness and experience the morbid? Uh, I get the feeling from myself and my friends, certainly, we all seem to have this thing where we need to stick our head back into the underground, into the darkness of civilization and the human existence time and time again, or is it the unhealed, the darkness in us that energetically needs to be mirrored? I think there is a thing with people who've suffered a lot of traumatic, you know, abuse that causes them, that has been highly traumatic to them, to explore because they're motivated by pain. So they're going to look everywhere and they will look where people, other people won't look. Um, it's what makes people with CPTSD sadly so useful to society. I'm sure I've said this for years. Um, when I was a kid, I really loved the Science of the Lambs books by Thomas Harris. And uh, the Science of the Lambs books, well, the Science of the Lambs was not about Hannibal Lecter. The Science of the Lambs is about Clarice Starling. It's the study of um, a young woman from West, a young girl from West Virginia who loses her father um, in a robbery that goes wrong, who becomes adopted by a farmer. And then she goes through a series of traumatic incidents, which is where it's about the slaughtering of the spring lambs. And all she wants to do is save one lamb from slaughter. The lamb that she really wants to slave, save from slaughter is herself. She joins the FBI because the FBI as an institution becomes a de facto father figure. She then finds a de facto father figure within the FBI who then kind of betrays her later on down the line as the FBI, as this uh, patriarchal institution definitely goes on to betray her further down the line. Not all the books are brilliant. Towards the end, they get a little bit sloppy, but it is an interesting look at uh, how people with CPTSD can end up becoming very, very useful to certain institutions and tend to get drawn into institutions. A similar um, relationship exploration you'll see in the series Homeland um, between the main character, uh, played by Claire Danes, or I think she's also a producer of the show. Great piece of acting, great portrayal of somebody battling with um, mental illness. I think she actually has, you know, like a reality warping uh, psychosis, which is not something I know anything about at all, that she battles in order to do the job that she does. The job that she does requires that she be able to learn languages really quickly, that she can change who she is in order to fit into a new culture really quickly, that she can decode things rapidly. All of these are skill sets and that she can kill, that she can defend herself and kill as it be a perfect assassin with total dissociation from her more vulnerable feelings. These are all things that people with CPTSD develop as skill sets in, in their childhood home. Clarice Starling, the whole story of the Science of the Lambs rings true um, because uh, Clarice Starling is a, is a great archetype for the tough girl with or, or tough guy with CPTSD with a chip on their shoulder who's out there trying to prove themselves. So they become useful to society. Will they go to the darker places? The character in Homeland, all she does is look for terrorists who are trying to kill as many innocent civilians as they possibly can. Uh, Clarice Starling, in the end of Silence of the Lambs, literally goes into 
um, the underground. It's like a um, it's like a metaphor. Oh fuck the 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 the, uh, the Greek story of the Minotaur, you know, the bull inside of the labyrinth, and she goes into the labyrinth. On she literally goes into the dark place. If you remember the end of the Silence of the Lambs, it takes place in darkness where the serial killer. Uh, Buffalo Bill can see her because he's wearing night vision goggles, but she can't see anything because he switches off all the fucking lights whilst she's in the labyrinth underground. She gets lost. She's running around. He, he uses a fake name, Jane Gum. She's running around Jane Gum's basement area where there's human skin hanging on the wall over there and there's this and that. But there's like moths being kept in a, in a place over there. She's running around. She can't see and he switches off the lights. She gets lost in the labyrinth while she's trying to rescue a woman from a pit so it goes a level even deeper and even darker than that, where the lamb that needs to be saved is down at the bottom of a pit. So it goes through like Greek mythology down in some Edgar Allan Poe level of darkness, the pit and the pendulum. She's just in that pit waiting for her skin to soften so that he can uh, kill her and, and you know take her skin because that's what Buffalo Bill does. So yeah, uh, these are fictional characters, but I think it, it rings true to the idea that yes, people with deep childhood trauma who are battling mental health issues, yeah, we'll go to places where other people won't because we're trying to seek solutions. We're trying to seek for justice. We're trying to seek redemption, trying to seek transcendence. And also we're not scared as neurotypical. We're not as scared as neurotypicals are. I found that time and again when I used to work security. Why the fuck did why the fuck did I ever work in the security world? My school, my, I went. To, I was fortunate. I went to a good private school. They thought I was smart, and I had uh, teachers who were ex Oxford and Cambridge lecturers, and they were like, "You should really be applying to Cambridge because my level of uh, uh, literature was was high for an eighteen year old." They're like, "We're, we're going to recommend that you do this," and I think three years later. I was a cocaine addict working on a door in Liverpool, having fights every weekend. Why? Why did I do that? Because I, as you said, I was seeking the darkness. I was seeking answers. Cambridge and Oxford would have been, it just didn't fit my self-loathing, um, uh, self-idealization. Like I didn't deserve to experience that. So I fucked it all up. Um, but I did notice that it was an environment which I had more power than other people because I wasn't scared like other people were. I wasn't as emotionally dysregulated by large displays of aggression because I'd grown up with large displays of aggression by adults when I was a child. So I'd had monsters, you know, like the rock troll in Lord of the Rings. Like that was the size difference. A rock troll would come and just fucking scream at me or beat the fuck out of me. And I'd be so terrified that my, I'd wake up the next morning and my hair would be all over the pillow. My hair would fall out of my head through terror. That's how terrorized I was in, in my childhood environment. So when I would stand on the door and people would want to fight me and they'd be saying this and that, I'd just be looking at them going, what, what are you going to do? And that was, that became, that became like a, like, um, like a, a catchphrase kind of thing. Like, well, but, yeah, but, but what are you actually going to do? What are you going to do? And, and I could see the difference between myself and other people and how they would respond to that stimulus, the, the, the stimulus that was there. And I didn't, now that could be dangerous. That's the flip side of the coin is I might under respond. And I think I did start to under respond to threat. Um, and I've seen other people do that as well. They just, they're no longer responding to threat because of the trauma, but yes, we seek darkness. Yes. We'll go where other people won't go. 
And yes, there will at times be a propensity to be braver than other people would be, but we're not processing it as bravery. We're just not feeling bravery really is when you feel a huge amount of fear and you do something anyway. But if people with CPTSD, if they're not even feeling the fear, <laughs> like, is it really is it really bravery? So there's a, a, a longer answer to a short question. Okay, boys and girls, that's it. I need to go to sleep. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Oh, by the way, uh, December 3rd and 4th, we've got another um, seminar, myself and Sam in Liverpool, um, following the... Uh, the big success of the last one, people really, really loved the last seminar that we did. Uh, this is going to be done with uh, Sam Vaknin, his wife, Lydia, and um, the my co-author on the book, How to Take Revenge on a Narcissist, Layla Lorick. She's also going to be speaking there. So if you're in Liverpool in the area, December 3rd and 4th, we're doing it at Liverpool Hope University. Um, all the details are on the website, spartanlifecoach.com. Um, please do come along. It's going to be a great weekend. Okay, thank you.